Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 16 is where we find ourselves today as we're working through the first book in the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, as we always mention, we would love for you to use one of the Bibles that we have in the chair rack in front of you. You're welcome to keep that Bible as your own. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, uh, you can find Genesis 16, which is pretty easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. But if you're unfamiliar with that, you can find it on page 9 or 11, depending on which, uh, which copy you have. So again, we want you to keep that. And as you're finding that, let me just throw in one more announcement that this upcoming, this July on Wednesday night, we're having another uh, round of our midweek fellowships. And Wayne will be teaching a class on personal evangelism. And so not the first Wednesday of July, because that's kind of mixed up there in the uh, 4th of July weekend. But then starting July 9th and then four Wednesdays through July, Wayne will be teaching on personal evangelism. We'll have a meal in the foyer at 545, and then we'll gather in here for an hour of teaching. There will be kids' ministry uh, for all ages, and of course the high school and middle school will be meeting. I really am looking forward to this. I I hope that you come. Uh, Summer's a little bit maybe easier. You don't have to get kids to school the next day. And I am really looking forward to leaning forward and being led by uh, Wayne, very capable guy, to help us think through more deeply what it means to be a people who don't just have the gospel and are in community, but are on a mission to glorify God in our, our spheres of influence and to think about just in very practical and ordinary ways, just the average Christian like you and me can be a, a witness for the gospel in their setting of life. And so I, I really am looking forward to this. Wayne sent us an email of kind of the topics of each night, and we'll highlight those as we go and as we kind of go week to week. Uh, but I was just really excited about, about what we're going to be covering, so I would encourage you to come to that. All right, well, let's get into Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we started this church nine years ago, and I remember... Uh, months before we, we started the church and launched publicly meeting. One of the things that you just kind of have to do in this day and age of, of doing anything, especially planting a church, is you have to have a website. And it was brought back to my memory as, as David Baum and is preparing to, we're uh, launching David Baum out to plant a church here, Lord willing, uh, in the Columbus area. A church plant from with the support of Crosspoint. And one of the things that David and I were talking about recently is just, you know, getting a website that's kind of up and running before they, they launch so people can find out information about the church and where it's meeting and all of that. And it sort of made me think about remembering going and sort of scouring the internet, looking at church websites before we planted Crosspoint nine years ago. And I remember always being struck by the, the sort of face that churches would want to give towards the public that would 
browse their sites. And, and it was always interesting to me on, on one little section, there'd usually be kind of an about us, telling us about the church's doctrine and maybe their leadership or whatever they have going on. But on, on some church websites, they'd have this little tab that would say our history. And then you'd click on the little tab and it'd be a couple paragraphs, you know, summarizing the, the five years of the church. You know, most of the church I was for churches I was looking at were younger churches, or maybe an older church that had been around for many, many years. But I was always sort of, I would always sort of chuckle at the, the rose-colored glasses through which they would sort of look at their history. You know, kind of, we started in 1940, and, you know, we had this pastor, and he was amazing. And then we, we, we moved on to this piece of property, and it was awesome. And we continued to see people coming to the Lord in many, many baptisms, and basically world out there browsing the Internet. We just want you to know that we are amazing. <laughs> When in reality, come on. I mean, we were born at night, but we weren't born last night, right? I mean, if you've been around at church life in the South, you know there were a few scraps in there somewhere. <laughs> right? Come on now. Can I get a north-south from anybody on that? All right. And, and I just always thought it was just a little, I don't know, kind of disingenuous and sort of detached from reality to even just sort of have this little history section on there talking about how awesome we are. We don't have an art history section in Crosspoint's website. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that when you read the Bible, God puts in his word all sorts of unawesome stuff and unamazing and like really raw things about his people. So last week... We were on one of the mountain peaks of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 15, where this great doctrine of how God justifies people not because of their ethnicity or not because of their good deeds or not because of their ability to abide by the law, but simply by the faith that God even gave to Abraham who was wandering as a pagan in the desert with the rest of his family when God chose him, that he justifies people by faith alone. And it's this great mountain peak of Scripture where God speaks directly to Abram and then cuts this covenant and confirms his oath by saying to Abraham that the, the possibility of me breaking this covenant with you is, is as impossible as me, God, myself, dying, Abraham. And so I'm going to cut an animal in half, and I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to cause you to go to sleep on the side, and I'm going to walk through these carcasses of this animal, and I'm going to say to you, Abraham, that I will fulfill my promise to you. And even if you break this promise, the consequences for you breaking this promise, I will bear the penalty myself. And we see that played out later beautifully on the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. You would think that that would be a sort of confidence-inducing event, and we can just fast forward to the end and get to the end of the story. And then we go from the mountain peaks of Genesis 15 to the absolute valley of Genesis 16 that we're going to read here in just a moment. And it is striking how jacked up we are and how patient God is. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. You know, before I pray, I'm going to give you my outline right here. I'm going to do it because I know you're nervous. 
So let's just put it up on the screen right there. First six verses of this beautiful chapter are the consequences of impatience. We're going to see Sarah and Abraham, Abram still at this point, concoct a foolish plan because of their impatience waiting on God's promise. And then the second part of this beautiful chapter is verses 7 through 16, which show us a God who hears and sees. So the consequences of impatience, and then a God who sees and hears. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to to help us. Father, as we come to you now, we are awestruck at your word, at your glory, at your transcendence, but yet also at your nearness, that you are here now. You're here ministering to us through your word, which is completely true and infallible and trustworthy. You're here by your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we read and confessed about this morning. Lord, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And your purpose is to bless and to refine and to transform your people into the image of your son, Jesus. And your purpose also is to save a great multitude of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do those things this morning, that you would encourage and transform and conform your people into the image of Christ as we humble ourselves underneath your word. And I pray that you would open the eyes of people that are in this room even now who do not know Jesus, and surely there are some, if not many, in this room who are not trusting in Christ. Lord, would you be so kind as to give the very thing that you demand, which is faith and repentance, so that that dead heart of stone that came into this sanctuary would be made alive, and their first breath of new life would be turning away from trusting in themselves and they would turn in faith towards Jesus and what he has done on the cross to make us right with you. Lord, would you do these things for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the salvation of the lost. In Christ's name, I pray, amen. Chapter 16, verse 1. Let me start reading here. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children, a reminder of Sarai's barrenness that we, we read about in Genesis 11 before God even chose Abram. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So this was actually kind of a common practice in the culture at the time that if a wife was barren, that the husband could, could lay with one of her servants and any child born by that servant would be legitimately an heir of, of that family. Now, that in nowhere is commended by God, and we'll see in a moment that he, he, he rebukes that plan, but it was a common practice of the time, so it wouldn't have been strange for them to have this plan, albeit it's going to display their impatience and lack of faith in God. 
And Abraham, or Abram, I'm sorry, still at this point, listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So let's pause there and just unpack and look at the consequences of impatience that we see in, in these six verses. First, we, sees, we see Sarah's, Sarai's perspective on her barrenness. In one sense, she kind of gets it theologically right where she says there that, uh, that in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from, from bearing children. So she's right in a sense that it is the Lord that gives and takes away. It's the Lord that opens the womb, that closes the womb. It's the Lord behind everything. We even read in our confession of faith this morning about the triune God, that He is providentially, sovereignly superintending His care over all of His creation. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus reminds us that there's not a hair on our heads that God doesn't know. There's not a bird that falls to the ground apart from God's heavenly will. But even as she gets that aspect of God's providence right, she has a a negative, pessimistic interpretation of his providence in her life. And she seems to be negatively viewing why God may be setting things up the way he has. And so Sarai's perspective on her barrenness is is, is a negative posture towards God. And this presses her to concoct this plan, a plan where her husband Abram will take her mistress and, and have a child through her. And then we see another consequence of impatience. We see Abram's passivity. I mean, it was the primary problem in the garden. It's the primary problem here in Genesis 16, and I think it's the primary problem in the world today is the passivity of men. We see Abram not even challenging Sarai's plan, just kind of going along with it. I mean, he's probably just watching SportsCenter, half listening, not even considering the implications. And then we see him just not even leading out and dealing with the consequences. Do you see how quickly things spiral down? So Abram just goes along with his wife's impatient plan, not leading, not speaking truth to her, not saying, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, how does this square with what God has told us and promised us? Not challenging her at all, just passively going along with his wife's bad advice. And then it blows up in his face. Then this servant girl gets pregnant, and now she develops pride and is mad, at, is, deal, is looking on her, her, her master uh, Sarai with contempt. And again, we see Abram passive again. He's just kind of there at the end. He's saying, ah, you know what? 
whatever, you're just going to have to deal with it, honey. You're, you're just going to have to deal with it. So he, by his lack of leadership, has really created the problem. He's paved the way for the problem to come into existence. And then once the problem blows up in his face, he just goes back to the remote and sits down on the couch with a bag of Cheetos and keeps watching Sports Center. I just don't want to deal with it. Just the consequences of their impatience in God, with God. And we see another just consequence here where one person's folly leads to another person's folly where we see Hagar, this seemingly innocent bystander who's caught up in this plan, who now conceives this child, and then that then becomes a source of pride for her. And so Sarai's folly and Abram's folly leads to Hagar's folly. And really, in just a matter of a few verses, we have from the mountain peak of Genesis 15, Father Abraham, this great patriarch of the faith, it didn't take long for him to mess it up, did it? I mean, we have descended into a spiral, a ditch of consequences. And before we, we move on, I, I just want you to, to notice one little phrase in there that I think is significant, and it's in verse 3. It says there, just this little detail, it says in this sort of setting of where Sarai and Abram are are, are about to make this bad decision, we see that Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. And so remember, God had promised Abram this land, but there were still these Canaanites and these foreign people, these idolatrous pagans that were in this land. And there seems to be sort of this implication, there seems to be this hint that rather than being a blessing to the culture around him, Abram had let the culture around him, these pagan idolaters, the Canaanites and all of these other people, rather than him influencing them, he was sort of letting them influencing him. And 10 years into it, of just sort of passivity, all of a sudden we find Abram in a place where he's just willing to go along with this impatient plan of his wife And then he's just so passive that he can't even deal with it. Friends, it just makes me wonder, how does our culture affect us? What what about us? I mean, just what are the things that we in modern day America just kind of, ah, whatever, and just sort of go along with it? What are our blind spots? You think about just even maybe the things that confessing Christians, maybe even people in this room are just okay with watching a movie channel. I just saw this write-up on the Desiring God website about John Piper warning Christians about watching this show, evidently on HBO, called The Game of Thrones, where regularly people, mostly women I imagine, are naked. And how many Christians are just kind of okay with these sort of things? Just sort of how okay we've become with just cultural norms. I mean, you just look in the newspaper and you look at just our culture's definition of marriage and sexuality. And we look, I even read this, this uh, yesterday about this big event in Columbus where the, I guess the city leadership of Columbus is, is calling June uh, a month of sort of celebration of gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender, transgender pride. Now, friends, let me be clear. Let me be clear. 
that I hope you, if you've been around for Crosspoint for a long time, that we believe that people mixed up in all manner of confusion and sin uh, can receive the grace of God. And if you're wondering where we stand on homosexuality, I refer you to a message that we preached back last year in July entitled The Gospel and Homosexuality, where we laid out the hope for all sinners. All of us are sexually broken. The issue is not homosexuality. The issue is sin. And God has clearly ordained the boundaries of human sexuality to be the one flesh union between a man and a woman. And we believe that God rescues all sorts of people. He rescues heterosexual sinners, and he rescues people with a predisposition towards same-sex attraction. But the point is, is that all sexuality outside of the one flesh union between a man and a woman is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Does that mean that a person that wrestles with attractions or desires outside of that norm cannot be a Christian? No, that's not what we're saying. But we're saying that to be a Christian is to take God's side against sin. But to give yourself over to something that is completely contrary to God's word is to be marching towards eternal separation from God. But here's the point. I venture to say that probably most of us agree with that. Maybe not. And if if you disagree with that, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, I would love to talk to you after the service. But here's what I want to press on is that we can be confessing Christians and live in a world where we're just kind of indifferent and okay with the world around us that is decaying. We can be the same way about the issue of abortion. We have a clinic in our town that two times a week takes the life, not of embryos, not of a clump of cells, but takes the life of very young human beings. And a vast majority of the confessing Christian culture in Columbus is relatively indifferent to it. Maybe even okay with it. Friends, we are are like Abram. Are we aware of the Canaan culture around us? And I think one of the reasons that God even inserts that verse 3 in there is that we would be people that would not be indifferent to a broken, diseased culture around us. And we wouldn't be people that retreat into, you know, bunkers, like little moralistic foxholes and lob grenades at the world. And we just become like grumpy Christians and all we do is watch like, you know, Sean Hannity and we're just mad. I'm sorry if you like him. Whatever. I mean, I don't, actually, I don't care. I mean, there's people yelling at each other. You know, just criticizing. No, friends. The, the gospel posture that God calls us to is not to be Christians who, who, who sort of wall ourselves off and lob grenades at the culture and we're just grumpy because everything's going to hell in a handbasket and it's not like it used to be back in the 50s or whatever. Well, friends, if there's one thing I want you to realize as we work through Genesis, that it has all gone downhill since Genesis 3. Don't talk to me about the good old days. None of you lived in the good old days. We've got two trajectories. God who is reconciling a people for himself, building a kingdom 
in the middle of a dark kingdom that will one day be fully consummated. And that's the kingdom of God. So things are always getting better for the Christian. And then we live in another kingdom that is always getting worse. So in one sense, God has always been forming a people and the world has always been sinking down into deeper despair. Do not fall into this false notion of some sort of utopia of the past back when Eisenhower or Reagan or whoever was president. It's been downhill since Genesis 3. And so the posture, the gracious posture that God calls us to is to be like foreign missionaries living in an outpost in a hostile world and leaving that outpost to infiltrate ourselves into this place that is dead and dying and to be winsome voices of hope, to not punish and to castigate the culture, but to plead with him and say, no, 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 no homosexual, no young lady that's at that abortion clinic. No, 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 there's a better way. There's life, there's hope, there's hope. Come on, come on. There's something better than giving yourself over to your sinful desires. And with broken-hearted boldness and compassion, we are people that are alert to the culture around us, but it breaks our heart and moves us in compassion and boldness to be winsome witnesses for the gospel. That's why this personal evangelism class that Wayne is going to teach in July, I think is so important because it helps equip us to posture ourselves in this way in our modern day Canaan. Well, enough of that. Let's, let's keep going. We just see here, I think the point of these first six verses is that Sarai and Abram's impatience with God and his plan lead to great pain. And not only are we just often indifferent to the things around us, I think we're just, we are like them. We are so prone to impatience in our culture, are we not? I mean, come on, the the moral of the story is not to look at Abraham and say, ah, what a knucklehead. (laughs) Can you believe that? God spoke to him in Genesis 15. Man, I ought to have done better. No, it's to see ourselves in that, isn't it? I mean, how are we impatient? How does our modern culture of instant gratification, what impact does that have on us? All right, just, just a couple nights ago. Uh, so there's this thing called bandwidth, apparently. And um, you can only have so much of it when a bunch of people in your house are on the internet. <laughs> and, um, and this particular evening, I think everybody in my house was on the internet, and I was wanting to send an email with several attachments to somebody here on the staff, Robert or something, I can't remember what it was, and if you guys can believe this, it took like more than three seconds for me to send that email. I had to wait. It was like living in 2002. I mean, it was so hard. There was actually a little bar telling me, like, the progress of the email. And I had to wait, like, 90 seconds for that email to be sent. What in the world's going on here? (laughs) Friends, I'm being silly, but do you realize the effect that our culture has on us? Instant gratification. Do you realize how that pollutes us? Do you realize how it just produces? It's like it, it doesn't help us grow up. 
it pushes us back to infancy. We are like little babies that just cry when we don't get what we want. And we bring that posture to God and his church. I want this. Why isn't this going my way? And one of the reasons that God includes chapter 16 right after this mountain peak is to show us that he has designed a weight. Do you realize that most of the Christian life is waiting? You know how they say like um, the human body is made up of like 90% water or something like that? I, still, I can't wrap my mind around that. I think that might hurt my desires to someday spontaneously combust because if your body's made out of mostly water, I guess it would be hard to catch on fire or whatever. But if we were, and I know somebody's emailing me the correct percentage or whatever right now. All right, open it up, get on the internet, send me an email right now. I'll look at the timestamp on your email when it takes 90 seconds for it to download later on when everybody's on the internet at my house, and I'll realize that you were sending me an email during my sermon. Okay, go ahead and do it. But I think that, whatever, 90, 95% of the human body is made up of water. Friends, I think that 95% of the Christian life is made up of waiting. And I think God designs it that way. Why? Why? Because God is lazy or because he's sleepy or because he's busy doing other stuff? No. God has designed the weight and patience I think, to lift our eyes from the things that are seen, to lift our eyes from these 80 or 90 years and to show us that there is something better than instant gratification. There's something better than answered prayer the way we want it to happen. There's something better than our timeline. There is God who richly supplies, who has created the world for his glory, not our comfort. There's something better than getting what we want every single time. We are people that are addicted to instant gratification and experience, and we need to see that. And as we read about Abram and Sarai, we need to confess it in our own lives. All right, well, let's pick up the pace and finish this thing out. Let's read verse 7 and hear about this gracious God who hears and sees. The angel of the Lord found her So remember, verse 6, I know it's been a while since we were there. (laughs) Abram said to Sarah, let me read that again, Behold your servants in your power, do her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So Hagar takes off. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And that's what that name Ishmael means, is God hears. Verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Verse 13. So she called the name of the the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. 
For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. At Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want us to notice here just briefly before we conclude this in response to Abram and Sarai, their impatience which led to folly and then Hagar's folly. We see a God who is gracious and hears and sees. Notice that God interrupts Hagar. She's in a sense sort of the victim of this sin, although she's involved in it as well. And she flees, and we see God interrupting her in verse, verses 7, 8, and 9 there. And notice that he asks her where she is going. I mean, isn't that just kind of our nature? When just stuff blows up, we just want to get out of there, and we just want to run. And God keeps her from running. Like he interrupts her. It reminds me of this, this beautiful psalm. I know many of you are familiar with it, that, that David writes, Psalm 139. When we're sort of running from God when we're just trying to get away from the situation that is blown up in our face, we should read these words. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in other words, the, the, the lower, if I go high, you're there. If I'm down in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me it be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, friends. What a gracious interruption that God has here in Hagar's life. And he asks her, Hagar, what, like, where, where are you going? You know, when sin is kind of piled up on us and we just want to get away and we just want to escape and we just think that there's no other alternative for us just to hit the ejection button. God says just so graciously, where are you going? Like, what, where, you can't run from me. And maybe God has, has done that in your life. And maybe God is, even this morning, asking that to somebody who's running away from the consequences of their own sin or considering it. And God wants to say to you, husband, where are you going? Where, where, where are you going to go? Come back. Come back to the Lord. He also, we see, humbles her. He forces her to reconcile with, with Sarai. He says, go back and make it right. Come on, Christians in the South need to, need to read this one. Come on, aren't we just masters at just sort of, I mean, just kind of moving on? You know, we, we're at a church for five to ten years. We have a dispute with somebody, and then we move on to some other place. It's just a pattern with some people. You know, they just, it just seems like, like, like just fights follow them. You know, 
So remember that, that story that's told about the guy that was deserted on an island all by himself. And when they found him, he had built this beautiful building out of the bamboo on the island. And it was just, you know, he had his hut that he lived in. And then there was this beautiful sort of church. And the rescuer said, oh, wow, that's, man, that's beautiful. And he said, well, listen, man, you've got to be in God's house. I mean, it's just me on this island, but... Uh, you know, I've been here by myself for a decade, but it was important for me to worship, and so I built a, a house for the Lord. And, oh, that's awesome. And then they looked over and up kind of distantly off on that little island that he was all alone on. There was another little, another little building that was off in the distance. And they said, well, what's that building? They said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Friends, I'm not saying there aren't good times to leave churches or break relationships or go other places. But like we are prone to impatience, are we not prone to just fleeing relational difficulty? Aren't we? And God forces Hagar to go back and make things right with Sarai. And then we see him give his grace to her and a promise of blessing. The God who hears and sees. In fact, there. This phrase in the Old Testament that we see a lot of times, the angel of the Lord, I, I think this is just an Old Testament biblical way of referring to, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament, these theophanies or these appearances of God to people in the Old Testament. I think this is speaking about God himself, maybe even the second person of the Trinity, because notice what the angel says there in verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Friends, angels can't do that. That's something only God can do. So this is God himself coming and saying to Hagar, even as she is the victim of the folly of Abram and Sarai and then complicit with her own, uh, her own contribution to that folly, God is, despite the folly of these three, is going to be gracious to them. And he promises Hagar this son who then becomes this wild donkey of a man. And much speculation, you may be wondering, much speculation as to who this man Ishmael becomes and the nation that comes out of them. I think that we can probably assume, and I think there's good evidence. We won't spend much time unpacking it this morning. There's good evidence that probably the Arabic peoples come out of Ishmael. But friends, I don't think that we should, if that is the case, and I, I do think that there's a case for that biblically, I don't think that we should then make that a case of us sort of looking down on people of, Arabic, of, of Arabian nations as being some sort of warlike people, even though that may be the case. I think the, the, the real gospel uh, thread weaving through this is that God is gracious to people even outside of the Old Testament promise. So God eventually in the New Testament is going to save not just Jews, but Gentiles and Arabs alike. And God is being gracious to all peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's a God who hears and sees. But in conclusion, there's just something here that just absolutely jumps out to me. Is we see, because up to this point, friends, this could be a, a sermon that you could hear just on a Tony Robbins commercial. I hope it's been helpful to some degree. You know, don't be impatient. Uh, you know, be aware of the culture around you. Reconcile with people that you're sideways with. But where's the gospel in this? Where, where's, the, where's the hint? Where's the, where's the pointer towards Christ? Because remember what we said when we looked at the Old Testament, we won't always be asking three questions. What does this teach us about ourselves? What does this teach us about God? And how does this point us towards Christ and his unfolding revelation in the scriptures? We see there in verse 13, 14, 
that when Hagar is, hears this gracious response from God to her folly and her running, she calls this place Beer Lahoy Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. This well that is there to provide for her, to, to quench her thirst, friends, I think is one of those little hidden gems in the Old Testament that is pointing us towards Christ, who is the well of living water. Listen, listen to what Jesus says when he, when he encounters this woman in, at the well in John chapter 4. He's having this conversation with her, and he's about to just peer into her heart as she's just getting him water there. And in verse 13 of John 4, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Friends, I think this this little insignificant, seemingly insignificant well here in Genesis 16 is pointing us, giving us a a sort of a pointer, a, a little seed, a shadow pointing us towards Jesus, who alone will satisfy. It isn't that the great hope of Abram? Isn't that our great hope that this world around us, this polluted water around us, trusting in ourselves and our own timeline will ultimately lead us to folly and destruction? But God, even despite our rebellion, even despite our thumbing our noses at his goodness, God interrupts us as we are running from him and he calls us out just like he called Hagar out and he promises to bless us just as he promised to bless her and then we see this picture of Christ as well and friends that therein lies the gospel that we have ran from God we've disobeyed him we've ran from him he interrupts us in our rebellion and he promises us to drink from his fountain which is to trust in Christ and his work on the cross, and not our own. I just see this beautiful disposition of, of God towards his people, and I end with this. Uh, two nights ago, y- yesterday afternoon, I, was, uh, I did the wedding for Doug and Sherry Duncan's daughter. Laura Lee is a beautiful wedding downtown at one of the churches down there. And the night before, on Friday night, we did the uh, rehearsal dinner. And that's the time when everybody gets up and, you know, says things about the couple. And Doug's parents, Laura Lee's grandparents, got up, and they had been married 60 years. And Mr. Duncan got up, and then Mrs. Duncan got up, and they talked about their 60 years of marriage. And they were reflecting back, even just very briefly, on those six decades. And they were saying to this young groom and bride, I hope that your marriage is as happy as ours has been. It was sweet, and everybody's like, oh, that's so amazing, and oh, ooh, it was, be- and it was beautiful. I mean, I had chill bumps. I was tearing up. I was over in the corner with my wife. We've made it 20, babe. We got another 40 to go. Let's go. <laughs> but then as I was reading this, it made me think of how God looks back on Abram's life, okay? So let me flip back to Romans chapter 4. We read a little bit of it last week. Look look how God interprets Abram's life. Romans chapter 4. This is amazing. Don't don't miss this. We're going to end on this. Okay, so we've we've just read about the folly and stupidity and impatience and passivity, passivity of Abram. And this is how God, through Paul, this is what God thinks of Abram in his life, in his faith. 
In hope, Romans chapter 4, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, listen to this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. Excuse me, Paul? Paul, did you read Genesis 16? I mean, I know you're an apostle and like all this stuff, your words are supposed to have some authority and I get all that, you know, words are true. I mean... Pablo, check it here for a second. Time out. Did, did you read Genesis 16? Abram didn't seem very convinced. And I sense a little bit of wavering in there, don't you? But here's the gracious disposition of God towards his people. When he looks back on the whole of Abram's life, it's not, oh, Abram, you know, I was so good to you. And man, watching you follow me was like a, like a stock graph at Wall Street that just goes up and down. Doggone, I'm so good to you, you knucklehead, man. You barely skimped through. Ah! No, God's disposition towards Abram, the way he describes Abram centuries later, is not to nitpick and say, oh, remember 16? Remember 16, Hagar? Ugh. Ugh. Remember that? Ah, you silly kid. He looks at his son Abram and he says, oh, he was a man of faith. And it made me think when I was listening to Mr. and Mrs. Duncan talk about their marriage of 60 years. Come on, friends. I mean, those of you that have been married six days <laughs> have already wrestled with some stuff. I mean, come on, all, all 60 of those years haven't been amazing. But they weren't lying. And they stood up and they said, oh, it's been good. It's been 60 years, and it has been good. And it made me think of the gracious disposition of God over us. It made me think of the gospel, that God is patient with us in our folly, in these moments when we can have this great faith, and then the next day, we're, we're in the fetal position, in the corner, worrying about whether or not we're going to make it through the day, and when God someday looks back on us, if we are in Christ, his disposition towards us is going to be grace. The Old Testament, I believe it's the Song of Solomon, says that his his banner over us is love, friends. So that should compel us. It should stir our affection for a God despite our impatience, despite our folly, who sees us and hears us and promises to bless us and is gracious in his disposition towards his people. Oh, friends, that makes me want to get up out of the fetal position, to get up out of that anxious corner and to trust the God who sees and hears. And that's the point of Genesis 16. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for Abram. He is not this unattainable, amazing, shining star that we could never be like. 
he is like us. He fluctuates between moments of spiritual mountain peaks and valleys of his own making. But yet, Lord, your gracious disposition towards Abram and his family is one of grace. And Lord, you have given us that same disposition. It has all been fulfilled and brought together in Christ. And so, Lord, I I pray right now for myself and the other struggling children in this room that, God, we, we would get a better picture of your fatherly care for us and that would compel us to to not be impatient to not distrust you and it would cause us to run to our father and not away from him when we find ourselves in self-imposed folly and lord i pray that that you would give eyes to see that a person who's come into this room thinking that you were some sort of lawgiver who demands obedience and morality that that we could never attain. Friends, Lord, I pray that we would see that that is not the message of the gospel, that you command us and you give us what you command and you give the gift of faith when you are saving a person and then that equips them to turn away from a broken, dirty well and to drink from the living well of Christ, which alone can satisfy. God, would you show somebody that in this room today? And Lord, would you develop in us patience and joy and satisfaction in Christ alone? And would you do this all for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for the salvation of the lost? In Christ's name.